right, you can open up to Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? When does Paul ask that question? What shall we say then? Okay, he, he asked in chapter 3, but like, uh, what, what, under what circumstances does he ask that question? What shall we say then? This is a question he asks quite a lot in Romans. Sometimes it'd be short, like what then? Sometimes what shall we say then? Yeah. Okay. Whatever he's been talking about before, he'll sense that you'll probably conclude this in light of what I just said. So then he'll say, what shall we say then? And then what does he usually do? He usually gives you the wrong answer. <laughs> and then he says, like, should we say this? And then be like, no way. May it never be. Okay? That's, that's pretty normal. So like back in Romans 3, uh, verse... Hmm, Five, maybe. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. You know, something, something like that. Uh, here in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace, or in sin that grace may abound? No way, by, by no means. This is not going to be the last time he does this. So he likes using questions to move the argument forward. You'll see this especially as we get like later in the book. But this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why would someone think that? Paul assumes someone might think that in light of what he just said. So what is it about what he just said that makes somebody think this? See the end of chapter 5? Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there's this idea that like wherever sin abounds, grace abounds more. And don't you want more grace? I want more grace. Do you want more grace? What's a good way to get more grace? More sin, more grace. So this is the kind of argument. So he said, what shall we say then? Are we supposed to continue on in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Then we'll have this long argument. What I want to do for this chapter is I want to read the whole chapter. So you guys can read it, actually. So... Um, Let's do three readers. So who wants to do verses 1 through 7 here? Verses 8 through 14 there. And then uh, fif uh, 15 through the end of the chapter. Okay? So 1 through 7, 8 through 14, 15 through uh, 23. Okay? So I want us to hear the whole chapter. It's all about the same thing. And then we're going to talk through different questions about this chapter. Okay? Great. Thank you, guys. <coughs> All right, so let's uh, think through a few questions. First of all, what is Paul doing with sin in that chapter? Painting it as a slave master. Okay. He is talking about sin as though it is like a person almost, right? What is that called? Personification. Okay. You'll notice uh, if you look carefully at the chapter that Paul uses sin in almost every verse. I mean, it's everywhere in the chapter, and it's always in the singular. So this chapter is not really about sinning, per se, or about sins. It is about sin. Sin as a master. Sin as a slave master. This kind of thing. It's, it's personified throughout the chapter. Sin as a power of darkness. Okay? Uh, also, what is Romans 6 about? Okay, so we read the chapter. One word. Sin. Five words. What's that? No. Okay, wages of sin is death. Well, what was it? Ooh. The Christian's relationship, I say two, to sin. That's my five words. The Christian's relationship to sin. So what is Romans 6 about? One word, law. Or no, no, not law. No, sin. <laughs> uh, five words, the Christian's relationship to sin. Okay. What is the Christian's relationship to sin? That is question number three. So question one, what does Paul do with sin? Personifies it as a master. Two, what is Romans 6 about? One word, sin. Five words, the Christian's relationship to sin. 
Question three then, what is the Christian's relationship to sin? The dominant theme of the chapter. Christian's relationship to sin, what is it? We died to sin. Okay? Question four. Who, what, where, when, how did we die to sin? <laughs> okay, who died to sin? What does that mean that we died to sin? Where did we die to sin? When did we die to sin? How did we die to sin? All those kind of questions. Everything about death to sin. This chapter is about the Christian's relationship to sin. We are dead to sin. We have died to sin. Well, like, who exactly has died to sin? How did that happen? What does that mean? All of those kinds of questions. Okay? What would you say? How does death to sin happen in this chapter? Through Christ. It's through union with Christ who died. Right, this is all over the place, okay? Death to sin happens through being united to Jesus who died. Okay? That's, that's how we've died to sin because we're united with the Messiah who died. How many people have died to sin? Has everyone in the world died to sin? No. How many people have died to sin? Those who've been united to Jesus. All those who have been united to Jesus? Is there anyone united to Jesus who hasn't died to sin? Okay, well, this will be a question. So this is, is this saying that all Christians have died to sin? Or is it possible that a person could be a Christian and yet not have died to sin? Is it possible that you could have two kinds of Christians some who've died to sin and some who haven't died to sin. Or is Paul saying all Christians have died to sin? What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Well, this will get into, we'll get into like what it means to have died to sin. But when you look at the text, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest, argue that all Christians have died to sin. All, all people who are united to Christ have died to sin. And if you're not united to Christ, you are not a Christian. <laughs> okay? Like, so that, that's going to be my, my take on this. Okay? But then that leads to like this big question. But what are we talking about? See, all of those questions are like not super hard to follow in the text. You know, what's this chapter about? Sin, Christian's relationship to sin. Uh, how did, uh, what is that relationship? We've died to sin. How did that happen? Through union with Christ. How many people has that happened for? All Christians. But what does it mean that we have died to sin? This will be the key question for our discussions of chapter 6. Uh, by the way, I think Romans chapter 6 has uh, been the most influential chapter in my life and about the, about the Christian life, Romans chapter 6. This is the chapter that I go to most often when I am trying to uh, encourage and counsel people in the, their fight against sin. Romans chapter 6 is the number one place that I go. But what does it mean that we have died to sin? <clears throat> okay, so back where I uh, taught Josh, actually, a long time ago, we were out in the uh, far away from... Uh, civilization, and there was a Walmart. Okay, do you know? You ever have you ever seen a Walmart? Is there, I don't think it's a Walmart in Ethiopia. Is there? Is there a Walmart? Okay, what do you think Walmart is like? Basically, gigantic store that has everything. Okay, it was like 30 miles away from where I lived, and uh, every but it was near the church that I went to. So like every Sunday, go to church, then you go to Walmart. Because it's like the place you could buy everything, okay? So this is in uh, the very north part of the United States. And I remember this one time driving out from this Walmart. Uh, and across the street, there was this hotel, okay? And outside the hotel, like at the entrance to the, where you drive in there, there was a tree. And hanging from the tree was a dead deer hanging by like a rope. Yeah, because this was a big hunting area, okay? So someone had 
been up there for a hunting trip, shot the deer, thought it would be a good idea to hang the deer off the tree, you know, right by the hotel entrance. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, this, this probably attracts people to the hotel up here because everyone likes hunting, okay? So, so I, I look at that deer. Now I want you to think about this, okay? That deer um, is hanging there, dead. And uh, let's suppose that you went over there because the deer wasn't hanging too high and you like punched the deer. What would the deer do? Nothing, why not? Because it's dead, okay? Let's say you took uh, some, some oats you know, deer like this, and you, and you put it in front of the deer's mouth. What would the deer do? <laughs> nothing, right? Put some salt up there. Nothing, right? Deer is dead. Is that your relationship to sin? Is your relationship to sin like, you know, a dead deer hanging off a tree, you know, to, to anything? Is that how you feel with sin? I don't feel that way with sin. Like is, is death, so you got to think, like what is, the, what is the metaphor, the picture of death to sin communicating? Because apparently it's not saying like we're as unresponsive to sin as a dead deer hanging outside a hotel. But it means something though. And so what does it mean? This is going to be, this will be key. So. What do you think was the dominant picture with sin? Sin was portrayed as what? We already heard this. Sin is portrayed in this chapter as a master, as a slave master, as the master of all people who are outside of Jesus. Or you can put this, sin as the former master of all of us. That's how sin is portrayed in this chapter especially uh, from about verse, you know, 10 and on. Like, let, like verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. Don't present your members or your body parts to sin, about sin having dominion, all of this stuff about slavery, okay? Sin is portrayed as the former master of every single Christian. And I would also say the current master of all those outside of Christ. It's this power that dominates over humanity. So when you have died to sin, what does that mean? You no longer belong to sin. Sin no longer owns you. Sin no longer has authority over you. And look at the text for this. So look at verse uh, 6. <clears throat> we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Death to sin <clears throat> in the chapter does not mean that sin will have no allure, like that it won't have any influence, that it won't have any appeal. But death to sin does mean that it has no authority over you. And this is good news. This is gospel kind of news. That if you've been united to Jesus then you have died with Jesus to sin, and sin no longer owns or defines you. Sin no longer has authority over you. Sin is no longer calling the shots. So, so for example, when you look at the beginning of the chapter, he says, what shall we say then? Are we con to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, by no means how can we who died to sin <clears throat> you all right <laughs> uh oh phone destroyed how can we who died to sin still live in it like how can you live as though you are still under sin when you've been set free from sin 
This is the, the point. Okay, so uh, maybe a good way to think about this is uh, to imagine that you know, your, your life and, and really everyone's life, out, my life, outside of Christ, imagine like it's like life working in a field. Okay? And so we grow up and we work in this field and there's an owner of this field and this owner is, is sin. We don't really know much about this owner, but this owner calls the shots. This owner tells us what to do, you know, tells us where to work, how hard to work, what to do at work. And so we kind of grow up living in that field, working for this master. <clears throat> and we keep working there, and it seems like it's okay at first, but maybe we feel a little bit like we don't like it, but we, for the most part, this is all we know. And so we just kind of keep working in the field. And then one day, somebody comes across our path, like maybe calls out to us in the field, and, and, and they say, hey, you know, I've got some, some news for you. Like, that master stinks, <laughs> you know? I don't know if you realize this, but like what you're doing there, that kind of work you're doing in that field, like that is, he's going to pay you someday, but you aren't going to want to like, you're not going to like what he's going to pay you. And you're like, what are you talking about, man? It's like that, that guy, he only pays out one thing. He pays wages, but those wages are death. You are in big trouble working. And so you're like, wow, what? One what? He's like, but I, I tell you something, there's a way... <coughs> to get out of that field. And so you hear this message and you're like, what do I need to do, whatever, you know. You can put, fill out this illustration, okay? But you hear this message and you realize, wait, I can get out of this field? And so you, you believe this message and you're able to like walk right out of the field. Like you, you're, you're like set free from that master, but there's another field right across the street. And you actually go over there and start working, and there's a new master over there. And you're working for that master now. So you're, you're not, you don't get set free from this just to go do whatever you want. You get set free from this master in this field, and you get transferred over to another field with a different master. And you start getting to know this master better, and you're like, this master is awesome. I like working for this master. This guy, he cares about me, and I enjoy this. Well, the problem is the, the distance between the fields is not very far. <laughs> and so what happens is we're working over in this field enjoying life and the master from this field that we maybe served for 20 years, 40 years, whatever, <clears throat> comes over and starts calling out across the field and is like, hey, don't you remember all the good times we had over here serving with me? Why don't you come on back, you know? I'll, I'll show you some good things, give you some good times and come on back over here. Remember the good times we had. And here's the thing. <clears throat> Does that sound appealing to you sometimes? It does. Especially if you've grown so accustomed to just listening to that master's voice for so many years. You start hearing his voice. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you're like. <clears throat> he starts calling you over. You start feeling a little bit drawn to that. Okay. But here's the thing. Does that master have the authority to make you come back and serve there and that is the good news of this chapter that sin sin's authority over you has been broken through the gospel it does not mean that it will not appeal to you or call to you or even that you may not temporarily listen unfortunately and submit but when you do that, you never do that because you have to. You always do that because you want to. Okay. This is one of the ramifications of this chapter. <clears throat> There's good news to it. There's also really sobering news. That when we do sin, we do not sin because we have to sin. We sin because we want to sin. Because Jesus, by us being united to Jesus, he has broken the power of of sin over us. We've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Set free from serving sin to serve a new and better master. <clears throat> and, and a lot of the chapter is Paul explaining this, trying to help you understand this. And this is part of what I say when I'm talking with people. 
about their struggles with sin. One of the main things I do first is I try to teach them about what the gospel does to us. What God does to us by uniting us to Jesus. We die with Jesus and we are raised as new people. We are set free from our old master. We are becoming slaves to a, to a new and better master. But look at how the chapter goes. Chapter 6, verses 2 through <clears throat> maybe verse 10 is all about teaching that this is true. But then what happens in verse 11? Someone read verse 11. <clears throat> And what is that? See, the first 10 verses are primarily teaching that this is true. And verse 11 is Paul's call to believe it. Like, so you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Like, so there is like teaching about what God does through the gospel. And then there is a call to actually believe it, that it is true of you. And I'll tell you, from talking with many people, many men who are maybe enslaved to various sins, they do not feel free. They feel enslaved to sin still. And so we have to walk through this and try to help them to understand what God has really done through Jesus in their life. And then you call them to believe this. But not only that, what does Paul do in verse 12? He, yeah. So don't let sin reign. It's the call to then respond with hard obedience. See, there is teaching. There is the call to believe this is true. And then there is the call to to hard, real-life obedience. Let not sin therefore reign in your bodies. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, and by members, it's talking about you, like your body parts. Do not present the parts of your body to sin <clears throat> as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness. Sin wants to still use you and abuse you. And Paul is saying, don't present your members to sin like you used to. He'll even make that point very clear later on when he says in verse, down in verse 19, he says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Like, what was the li what's the life of an unbeliever like? What was your life like? You got up in the morning, and you showed up for work. And you presented your body to sin, to a horrible master, to do with you what it wanted to do. And Paul was saying, never do that. Don't do that. Do not present your, the members of your body to sin to do with you what it wants to do. Because it wants to use your body as weapons for unrighteousness to produce destruction and death, but rather present your bodies to whom? To God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as weapons for God to use for good, for righteousness. And then there's the encouragement in chapter 6, in verse 14, that this will work. For sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under the law, which tells you what to do, but can't give you power to do it. But you are under grace, where there are both demands, but also the supply to meet the demands, where there is strength and power to obey. This is really like, <clears throat> like I said, I think this has been the most formative uh, section of the Bible for me about the Christian life and about what God has actually done for us in Jesus. Where God unites us to Christ and we die to sin and are raised 
to walk in the newness of life. And we need to believe that, and we need to respond daily with hard, real-life obedience, saying no to sin's advances, saying yes to the Spirit's leading. And there's hope, because sin will not have dominion over you, because you're not under law but under grace. Like this is Paul's take on the, on the Christian on the Christian life, and the whole chapter kind of revolves around, around that picture of sin as the former master of every Christian. <clears throat> now, I want to go back and want to talk about uh, baptism a little bit, because what's the deal with baptism in this text? Because <clears throat> you notice, Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it. And if you say, well, Paul, when did I die to sin? What are you talking about? What does he point you to? Baptism. Okay. So when Paul wants us to understand how we've died with Christ to sin, <clears throat> or to understand that that's actually happened, what does he point us to? He points us to our baptism. If you want to remember your death to sin, Paul says more or less, remember your baptism. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this. So I want to highlight a few things, okay? When he says that, what kind of baptism is he talking about? Is he talking about water baptism? Or is he talking about some other kind of baptism, like spirit baptism or something like that? Is this a wet or a dry passage? Is there water in Romans 6? How many of you would say, I think he's talking about water baptism? Raise your hand if you think that. How many of you say, I think he's talking about spirit baptism? Baptism in the spirit. Okay. All right. It's not quite all of the numbers in this book. But, <clears throat> all right. So, I would like to suggest that he is talking about water baptism. Now, I used to, th I used to say uh, that he is talking about spirit baptism. In fact, I can remember a girl in my, when I was working with some youth, I remember asking some of the teens or whatever at this church, like, what are some passages about water baptism? And she said, Romans 6. And I said, that's not about water baptism. That's about spirit baptism. And she said, really? Yeah. Okay. I still remember that. Made me think, like, why do I think that? <laughs> uh, I, had a, I had, and then over the years, I started to realize, this is about water baptism. <laughs> okay. Now, here's, here's my take. I used to think, wow, the book of Acts talks a lot about water baptism. Right? It's still, I still think that. <laughs> it does. But then I think, why doesn't Paul talk about water baptism? You know why he doesn't talk about water baptism? Because every text I read where he talked about baptism, I said, he's not talking about water baptism. <laughs> he's talking about spirit baptism. So my, the reason Paul wasn't talking about it was because every time he was talking about it, I said he was talking about something else. <laughs> so I, I have since very much changed my view on this. Okay? So let me, now you might have like questions, you know, like how does this, like doesn't that mean like, what about those who haven't been baptized or like, it's just saying baptism is how, like, literally we're united to Jesus. And if you're not baptized yet, are you not united to Christ? So there's lots of questions like this, okay? So I want to think about this, talk about this. So baptism was so significant in the early church okay, that unless Paul is very clear that he is not talking about water baptism when he says baptism, I think we should always assume he's talking about water baptism. That's, that's the position I have now, okay? And do you know how many times he talks about baptism and is not talking about water baptism? My position now, I think maybe one. When he says in 1 Corinthians 12, we've all been baptized in one spirit. But honestly, even in that, I don't know if the readers wouldn't have still connected that to the water to some degree. Like just because 
when you hear baptism in the first century and it is like the sign that you're with Jesus and somebody's talking about it, like that's what you think about. All right, now, I would also, I would add that Paul is, I don't think, Paul is not saying that it is literally going through the water that unites us to Jesus and that puts us to death to sin as if, as if the water itself has power to save us from our sins. It's been crystal clear throughout Romans that God declares us righteous when what happens? When we trust in Christ alone. So I, I think that's been obvious throughout the letter so far. But having said that, going through the waters of baptism in the New Testament okay, is basically synonymous with coming to Christ. That's that. So going through the water is basically a synonym in the New Testament for coming to Jesus. And what I mean by that is if you wanted to encourage a person to remember their confession of faith in Christ or when they became a Christian, where would you point them? You just point them to their baptism. Why? Because it was in the waters of baptism that one's faith went public. Up until you were baptized, you did not have the visible sign of being a Christ follower. Up until you were baptized, you didn't have the mark on your back, so to speak, that you were one of those people. But when you went into those waters and you were plunged into that water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it was like game on. For better or worse, I am with Jesus and he is with me. This is something that, at least in, in the churches I've been familiar with, we, we've missed in many of our churches, baptism. I don't know, I don't really know the situation here as much, but from my own context, I can speak about this, that baptism has often been viewed as something nice, good, but fairly insignificant. Something you can kind of take or leave, do at your own convenience, you know, someday, maybe. And then, in the American culture, at least, I'm, again, I'm not sure about here, for most people in America, baptism doesn't really cost them anything. Uh, not too many, like, what I mean by that, not too many people really care one way or another if you do or if you don't. But that was not the way it was in Paul's day. And it's certainly not the way it is in every part of the world today. Just ask uh, gospel workers in Muslim countries about what baptism means to new followers of Jesus. You know, go to predominantly Muslim country Ask a gospel worker, preacher the gospel, how important is baptism? Ask them how much those folks count the cost of going through those waters. And some of you know this stuff firsthand. How much they count the cost of confessing Christ as Lord in front of other people and of identifying with Jesus by going through those waters. And I think we need to recapture the way the New Testament actually talks about this and we need to start remembering our own baptisms. I was reading uh, Martin Luther not too long ago. He obviously had, a, he had uh, some different views about baptism, but he, but he often encouraged people in a way that I think is very helpful <clears throat> about baptism. It, it was a sermon he was preaching on Christ's baptism. He identified baptism as the place where the wretched old man is led to drown and die, as well as a sign and seal of our new life from God. Luther also added the these words. He says, he's encouraging his congregation. Now, if you fall into sins, then remember to flee again to your baptism, for that is the little boat that can help you over. Have you ever fled to your baptism in your fight against sin? You're struggling, maybe you've sinned, maybe you've fallen, maybe you've turned away from the Lord go back to your baptism think about it remember the water rushing over you the people gathered your confession of Christ as Lord identifying with Christ having died with Christ having been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life feel the washing of the water yeah. reminding yourself of your identity I do not want to go this way. Lord, forgive me for it. 
help me to walk in the newness of life. Uh, this is what, I think this is basically what Paul's doing. When he says, you know, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Or don't you remember your baptism? I think that's pretty much how the, how the argument goes. And uh, so, th- so now any, any uh, well, maybe just a couple more things. Don't take any questions on chapter 6. So I, I think um, you'll notice in 6.14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. This is, Paul, we're going to come to this in chapter 7, but Paul keeps giving hints, like that Christians are not under the law. The law is not particularly helpful, you know, in a lot of ways. Like, it brings wrath, increases the trespass. This is raising all kinds of questions for us about the law. He's going to answer those in chapter 7. Also, uh, did you notice how, when we read it, that everybody's enslaved to something? Um... I don't know if you've ever talked to like an unbeliever who is like, <clears throat> you're talking to them about Christ. And one thing that can be said sometimes as an objection is, I don't want to give up my freedom to become a Christian. And, and I, I think that that's just a sign of how good sin is at deceiving people. Because they think they're free. I don't want to give up my freedom. Nobody's free. <laughs> like, in, you know what I mean? Like in this picture. It's just a matter of which master you're going to serve. Hey, thanks so much. So it's, it's just a matter of which master you're going to serve and what, you're, what it's going to lead you to in the end. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love that, even in verse t- in 23. Because Paul just always like sneaks in like kind of like really great gospel things. For example, he doesn't say the wages of sin is death, but the wages of Christ our eternal life. You notice that? Because that doesn't fit very well. So he'll say the wages of sin, what sin's going to pay you out, what you're going to earn is death. But what your new master gives you free of charge is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So. Alright, so, so what do we get? What thoughts? Any thoughts, questions about chapter 6? So, you know, some of these chapters we won't be able to like look at every single verse like super close, so we'll kind of look at the whole thing. But what but then we can talk about them. Yeah, so that's a good question. Like, <clears throat> when it comes to asking our Christians sinners, people are going to have different answers to that, okay? <clears throat> if I say, are Christians under sin? No. No. No Christian is under sin in Paul. Okay? Christians are not enslaved to sin. Sin does not own, define, or have authority over Christians. This is part of the good news of the gospel. Now, when people start saying, okay, so then can we call, like, should we say that, like, Christians are not sinners? Or is, yeah, it, it, it depends, because I think sometimes what people mean by that is, are you saying that Christians won't sin? Okay, and, and I would say Christians are not obligated to sin. <laughs> like, they are, sin cannot force you to obey its passions, like these kind of things. But the reality is that knowing the fallenness of human beings, we will continue to struggle with sin and sadly, not just struggle with temptation, we will continue to choose to sin. Not because we have to, but because we still are drawn to this, get deceived sometimes, or sometimes just flat out we want to. Right? And so in that sense, if I were asking like, are we saying Christians won't sin? Then, no, I think the reality is we're all going to continue to fight against sin, struggle with sin, and sometimes sin. But if you're asking about, should we talk about Christians as sinners? Like, as the defining characteristic of them? And people might disagree with me on this. I think no, because if Paul doesn't do that, I'm just, like, really, really into talking the way that Paul talks. And so, like, when I'm looking out at my church, all right, like, okay, so I'm, I'm here right now, and I didn't, I didn't do this, but let's say I wanted to write a letter, and I say, Brian, whatever, I think of my greeting, to the, to the church in, in Richfield. Sinners. <laughs> you know, like, Paul would never say that, like, in his greeting. What would he say? Called saints, you know, like, so in that sense, like, when he's talking about identity, like, or the, the defining characteristics of people, he's not looking out at the church and saying, look, all these sinners out here. 
And look at God's holy people. Look at God's saints. So I think, I always want to be careful, though, because I'm not sure what everybody's asking. Like, and so sometimes, like, this discussion can go, kind of go sideways. Because I think there's a, and I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm just, as I've tried to work through this, like, I do not look out at God's people and say, look at all these sinners out here. You know, even though I know we're all sinning, like we're all struggling against sin, I think oh, these are the holy people of God. These are the people in whom God's spirit dwells. Like, and, I, and I think sometimes uh, we can feel like it's extra holy to talk about ourselves and everybody else as if we are constantly hating God and hating everybody. <laughs> like, you know, just as if like every, everything I think and everything I pray is just filled with sin and tainted with sin and I'm just a horrible, horrible person all the time. And, and, and we feel like that's humble and that's like good. And I'm like, show me where Paul talks that way, you know? Like, now Paul knows we are going to have to fight and we're going to have to repent and we are going to have to confess our sins and walk in the light. But he, he is so like committed to the, the belief that God's spirit has actually changed us and is dwelling within us and is giving us power and new desires to, to follow Jesus. Like, don't you brothers want to follow Jesus? I know we won't do this as well as we want to, but don't you want to? Like, isn't the bent of your heart now to say yes to Jesus? Like, you love him, don't you? I mean, Peter's like, like, though we don't see him, we love him. And, and, and so I am just like really committed to try to talk the way the New Testament talks and let it shape my view of the Christian life. And um, yeah, I think we've got really good news uh, in the New Testament about the Christian life and the power of the gospel to actually change us and, and make us new. Um, like the, I don't think the new covenant is like, I'm going to, you know, grant you the spirit and grant you a new heart so you can be exactly the same as you were before. You know, it's like God is actually changing us and doing something in our hearts and granting us new, new desires, but yet we are going to fight and we're going to need each other and we're going to fall and we're going to need to get back up in repentance and, 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 and confession and we're going to need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters even to say, look, you've repented of that. Like God's forgiven you. Brother, let's keep let's keep walking with the Lord. So, yeah, yeah. So, so First John. So these are good. Like, if yeah, if we're saying like we have we haven't sinned, or that we don't sin. Like, I, I again, I'm saying like if I'm saying like, look, guys, I never sin. <laughs> like, I don't sin. Sin has nothing to do. I, I don't. You guys, you guys all might struggle with sin, but man, I don't. Sin, nothing. Got nothing on me. If I if I'm talking like that, like, I'm really proud very deceived, and uh, yeah, I'm probably lying to you. Uh, so I think, but, it, but I think that's, a, again, I think that's a different question than saying, like, when you look out at a church, what do you see? Sinners, or do you see the holy people of God? And I'm, I'm just going to go with Paul everywhere on that. So that's, that, oh man, I'm getting coffee left and right. Sweet. Thank you guys. Um, no, but I would say, uh, in First John, so I, I love that text in First John, because John is very recognized. It's the same thing Paul does: that we are going to struggle against sin, and we're going to have to actually not let sin reign, and we're going to have to say no, and we're going to have to repent and confess when we unfortunately say yes to sin. And so, like even when John is talking about walking in the light, what is he talking about? The walking in the light in First John is not walking in perfection. Because what is walking in the light? It is to confess your sins when you sin. To walk in the darkness is to sin and hide it. To walk in the light is when you sin, don't hide it. Confess it. Own it. Admit what Paul says is true here. That you actually did that because you wanted to do that. Own it. Confess it to the Lord. And be encouraged that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, this is what it is to walk in the light and this is what it is to walk in the light with each other. It's not to hide that we ever sin. It's actually to be open about it. Like, like James and I say, even to like, confess our sins to one another. 
because we encourage each other. We can pray for each other. We, sometimes we don't know how to pray for each other because we'll never share with each other what's going on. This happens all the time in the church. Like, we want to pray for each other, but we got nothing specific to pray because no one will ever open up about anything. You know, we feel like we're too ashamed or something to, to ever say the things that we're actually struggling with. You know, so we just keep it in, and we're, like, not part, taking advantage of the gift of the body, you know, which is there to help us and pray for us and encourage us and remind us, hey, you're forgiven when you confess that sin. And there's hope for you for the days ahead because you're not a slave to sin. Anyway. Okay. Or we're set free because we died, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so it's like you can't put an equal sign. Dying means set free. Like it seems, why does he not just say you've been set free from sin? What does he mean by saying you died? Well, he wants to use the picture of death and life, and he's going to connect it to baptism. So so then he, he is saying if you've died to sin, you've been set free from sin. Like that's his explanation of what he's talking about. The picture, the metaphor is having died. And he's connecting that to baptism. You know, so, the, so the picture he wants you to think of is you've died to sin. But then he also, I think, realizes not everybody's going to like know exactly what he means by that. And so then he'll use other language like set free. He'll bring in the picture of sin as a master. And you no longer enslaved to sin. To try to help you understand what death to sin is talking about. Is, is <clears throat> so I think the, the, the main picture is you're, you're dead to sin. And then these other things are kind of explaining what that means, like that you've been, that, mean, that means you've been set free from sin. That means you're no longer enslaved to sin. That means sin's no longer your master. All these things are helping you understand what it means to be death, dead to sin. But also for Paul, you're not, you haven't just died with Christ to sin. You've also been raised with Christ to, to new life. And um, so he says, so you've got to consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Because he, he wants to tap into both the death and resurrection with Christ and, and the connection that it has to baptism of dying and rising. Is that saying that our dying to sin is a metaphor that literally means we've been set free? Well, some of this is metaphor, like in that sin is portrayed as a, as a master. I mean, if we want to use metaphor to say that, that's what that is. That's what that is. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking, but I think I feel comfortable saying that's metaphorical language. Like we, we haven't actually physically died, but, but, in, but in another way, we are united to Christ who physically died, who literally died, and so I'm not sure if metaphor actually is the best way, but it's the picture he wants us to think about. We, in baptism, we die, we rise, and he's, he's using that to say, here's what that means for your life. You're no longer enslaved. Sin's no longer your master, which is also a picture. He's using these different pictures throughout the, throughout the section. Uh, you might wonder, like, what about somebody who's unbaptized? You know, like what is, uh, so, so if you ask Paul, hey, hey Paul, I know this Christian who's not baptized. Are they dead to sin? What do you think Paul would say? What would be his first question? Why are they not baptized? Yeah, probably something like, why are they not baptized? Or how do you know they're a Christian? <laughs> you know, but uh, then I think if you really pressed him on it, he would, he would say they're, they're dead to sin if their face is in Christ. But, but that's not even a category in the New Testament. Like the idea that I would go and talk with Paul about uh, a Christian who's not baptized. He's like, what's that? I've never, never seen one of those <laughs> before. And, and I'm, not, I'm just saying like this, and I understand our world is different. I'm not trying to like, you know, make fun of like, you know, people who, who are trusting Christ who haven't been baptized yet here. It's just like in the first century, I think we're talking about like something that doesn't even, it's like doesn't even make sense. There's no category for this. Because baptism is so connected to the conversion experience. Yeah. So this is actually a question that we have to ask you. This is I think going to be a good summary. Would you baptize a Christian other than those who convert, or would you want to? And what was the answer last week? <laughs> <laughs> no. So uh, no, I don't actually want to know. I don't even want to know what somebody else says. So um, unless it's Josh. No, but, uh, so it's there's a long precedent going back of separating faith in Christ from baptism in time. Like this, you can read about this even like back in the Didache and other, like this, this goes back a long, a long, long way. I understand why 
that happened. You know, why there was like this desire to make sure that people knew the gospel and they knew what they were doing. You know, especially as uh, baptism was like the visible sign that you were one of Christ's people and, and you could end up getting killed for this kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's like you, you want someone to understand what's going on for their sake. And you also, for the church's sake, want to make sure that like this person actually knows like the basic gospel, you know, and is trusting Jesus. So like, so then there would be this time separation to try to help people, you know, understand that. And, uh, and so I understand, I understand that. Although the New Testament picture is definitely in baptism is much more connected to, you know, your actual profession of faith in Christ, your actual belief. And you see that regularly in Acts. So, so I think we're kind of have like a little bit of tension there of like, what is the, it's more of like a pastoral practical theology question then. I think that on the whole, I would love to see the time shrink, you know? I, I'm not like a Church of Christ guy. Like, so there's like jokes about like, you know, people in the Church of Christ, like, cause like you, like they, they connect this so tightly together. So sometimes it's like, you know, they're walking up the aisle, you know, to receive Christ and you just keep walking them right into the water. You're like, <laughs> like this is, and, and uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not there like on that, but I, but I do think there's a real danger of separating this by a long time because when you're reading all of these texts from Paul where he's like appealing to your baptism and so forth and it's like connected to the conversion experience and your, the beginning of your setting out to walk with Jesus, you know, and it's like it was like 10 years later, you know, that it's not ideal. Again, we deal with a lot of things that aren't ideal, but I think the, the closer it can be, the better. But yet I also understand this side that like, let's make sure somebody understands what, what they're doing, what the cost might be, and that they at least understand the basics of the gospel and have laid hold of, of Christ. But, but sometimes I think even on that, like, and this comes into like what we do with children and so forth in the church as well, is that we can maybe set the bar far higher than what the New Testament was. Like, that I want, like, like so I think, like, like with a kid, okay? So you got a child who's like eight years old. And, uh, and again, churches are going to do different things with this, okay? But like a child's eight years old, and they love Jesus. And they're, they, they know they're a sinner, and they know Jesus is a great Savior, and they're trusting Jesus. And, they, and they're like, and they're hearing about baptism, or, or you're partaking of the table, and it's like, you, you know, talking about baptism in that context, and like, I would love to be baptized. And, and, and in a lot of places, um, they'll be like, really said, no, no, you can't at all. Or they'll want the child to be able to articulate things like an adult. Whereas I think if you're talking with Jesus, he's probably like, I think the adults need to become more like the kids <laughs> in this and just really trust me. <laughs> You know, so, uh, so I, I have, I think sometimes we're like trying to set the bar like too high in terms of like being able to like articulate everything and uh, when it's really like, does the person know they're a sinner and have they laid hold of Jesus? Do they, do they love Jesus and want to follow him with us, you know? And, uh, and then maybe they just say, and they say, look, here's the water. What's standing in the way of me being baptized? And we're like, there's nothing. Come on in, let's do it. <laughs>